0: Good afternoon everybody. Uh, my name is Mackenzie Walk. It's my job to uh, introduce the panel and a little bit about the book we are here to discuss. And because I've done this before and you haven't, you go like this, right?
1: Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> what you do. Uh,
0: all right, so first of all our panel, uh, we have Jules Joanne Gleason is a comparative gender historian writing from a queer perspective about both pre-modern and contemporary societies. She covers a wide range of related topics, from uh, ethics to embodiment. She's an academic worker, queer phenomenologist, Hegelian Marxist, and Londoner, currently based in Vienna. Uh, Natasha Leonard, down the end, is a columnist for The Intercept, teaches critical journalism at the New School for Social Research. Her next book, Being Numerous, essays on the non-fascist life, has been gestated alongside Sophie's, and will also be birthed via Berso at the beginning of May. And Sophie Lewis is a queer feminist geographer committed to cyborg ecology and anti-fascism. She's a writer, translator uh, and teaches at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research in Philadelphia. She's a member of the Out of the Woods Collective and an editor at Blind Field, the Journal of Cultural Inquiry. Inquiry or inquiry? I never know. It's inquiry in America, right? Yeah. That's right, thank you. Uh, her book, <laughs> Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family, is published by Versailles on May 7th. Now, Sophie asked me to say a few words about full surrogacy now to get us started. Uh, giving birth is commonly called labor. What happens if all of human pregnancy and gestation is thought from the labor point of view? That's the challenge of this book. If it's all labour, then how can that labour be freed from new global regimes of colonial and commodity exploitation? Lewis takes one of the most everyday things about being human and thinks it through from the point of view of cyborg communism. This book goes far into places where few gender abolitionists have ventured and brings up us a vision of another life. As Sophie puts it, we are the makers of each other and we could learn collectively to act like it. And then she offers, uh, what she offers, in her words, is an approach that is theoretically immoderate, utopian, and partisan. The book draws our attention to a tradition of utopian socialist biology, uh, which offers ways of thinking that frees us from assumptions about nature that are little more than bourgeois ideology masquerading as if they were immutable. It points us toward the possibility of a gestational communism That could be collaborative, non-proprietary and using appropriate technology. It's an approach to reproductive labour that puts it in the context of social reproduction and which pays close attention to our structures of class exploitation, racial domination, patriarchal control and the exclusion of transgender humans concatenate with each other. While I appreciate most... What I appreciate most about it is the way it refuses the choice between market-based solutions and state control. Market is great if you're the one with the money and hence the social power in your pocket. And the state is great if you can approximate the norms of individual and social life through which it regulates a people. But if you're not, either of those things a more radical approach is called for. Uh, And most of us are neither of those things. So let's seize the means of reproduction, abolish gender, abolish the family, and abolish work. Who's down for that? (laughs) Yes, okay. Or at least let's think about the techniques and the political economy of reproductive labour with that as the only real end goal worth imagining. Lewis is focused on sur- surrogacy, but her approach seemed immediately connected, in my mind, to other aspects of our cyborg being. Uh, for example, the production and maintenance of transgender bodies. So uh, that I hope frames the the book a little bit. Uh, and who's going first? We didn't talk about this bit. What's the order? Uh,
2: whatever. I was fast on the order, but I. All right, let's let's
0: stick that. to it. That's the thing um, to do, so, right?
2: Unless you're yes, I can do that. Maybe yeah, okay. you should leave that to the last. Yeah, okay. 15, uh, I'm just getting a notebook.
0: So as you were. Thank
2: you so, much. so I'm going to start with a
1: mystery quote
2: before I get into talking about full surrogacy now. And if anyone can identify it, then I'll be very impressed, but it's not a pop of Okay, so this, so this mystery writer writes, Biological motherhood has long been used uh, as a reason for condemning women to a role of powerlessness and subservience in the social order. Therefore, it is hardly surprising that feminist thinking has had to begin by rejecting physiology as the basis for consideration of ability, and by exploring whatever else women is and might be besides a body with uterus and breasts. However, she continues, I believe that a radical reinterpretation of the concept of motherhood is required which would tell us, among other things, more about the physical capacity for gestation and nourishment of infants, and how it relates to psychological gestation and nurture as an intellectual and creative force. Until now, the two aspects of creation have been held in artificial isolation from each other, while responsibilities of men and women have largely been determined not by anatomy, but by laws, education, politics, and social pressures, claiming anatomy as their justification. Okay, any takers? (laughs) Any feminist history nerds in the room? All right, so this is from Adrian Rich's The Anti-Feminist, which is from 1972. So, like, here, here in 2019, I think it's safe to say that full surrogacy now is a long time coming. So to turn to the book itself, it's, it's customary to open launches or previews or whatever this is uh, mm. with, with kind of praising the hard work and the diligence that has gone into the book's production, the earnest scholarship and the transcendent insights which it contains that anyone who's interested in contemporary politics around this issue uh, will surely need to get into their system and to sort of talk about the indispensability of the book for a reader who's trying to keep up with the cutting edge of theory. And while Full Surrogacy Now, I think, does deserve all of that more conventional praise, I'd rather like to start by praising the book for its sectarianism. (laughs) As its subtitle, Feminism Against Family, suggests, this is a partisan text which seeks to explore both the failings of existing perspectives within feminism and then advance a truly revolutionary position so while it is a thorough and diligent work of scholarship by any measurement, full, full surrogacy now is also, perhaps more importantly, a success as a polemic. Uh, and I think it succeeds uh, uh, on two fronts here. So firstly, as a contribution to feminism, but then also as a contribution within Marxism. So to talk about feminism, within feminism, full surrogacy now is a breakthrough in grasping uh, what radical feminism, um, or at least what radical feminism has begun today, at this point, in the 2010s. Um, And then why Marxist feminism, specifically a Marxist account of gender relations, um, reveals that kind of class-oblivious radical feminism um, to consistently fail as an explanatory framework uh, and consistently fall short of proposing or promoting actual revolutionary change rather than agitating around isolated issues which are not really well understood. Okay, so... um, to kind of situate myself a bit, I think this book has a great deal of use, particularly for anyone who has found themselves surveying uh, the feminist movement around the world, but also particularly in Britain, both Sophie and I are British emigres who've kind of moved on to greener pastures um, <laughs> in one way or another. Um, and I think when, when you're looking at these things, particularly as a British feminist, there are these kind of consistent questions. There are these questions which everyone is sort of um, plagued by. So... So, for instance, why is there one set of feminist perspectives that call for the abolition of the sex industry, transgenderism, and also surrogacy, um, and another kind of seemingly zero overlapping group who call for the abolition of police force, prisons, more recently ICE, uh, and other struggles like that? So, So why is there no overlap between these different abolitionist horizons? Um, why is there so much overlap between feminists who refuse to acknowledge sex workers as workers and those who refuse to recognize trans women as women? Hmm. Why are radical feminism's often, often astute observations concerning the, na- the nature of the state, um, by thinkers such as Catherine McKinnon, so rarely reflected in political strategizing? Um, and why does this political strategizing not only assume the state, but often actively encourages policing, systems of, as, of incarceration, um, and surveillance? Uh, And why are so many feminist activists who were previously committed to a wide range of um, issues, concerns, analyses, and so on, increasingly dabbling in or outright plunging into discourses most reminiscent of hate groups? So these questions are especially pressing... Um, uh, especially pressing from a historical perspective because I think from a historical view, things look very differently when we consider radical feminism. The quote I opened up with, for instance, says, you know, the whole point, that our, our, our departure point is that women are not reducible to being a uterus or being a pair of breasts. And again, as British emigres, You may know in the United Kingdom, some parts of the feminist movement have been sort of actually hiring out billboards Mm. that talk about the the legal definition of a woman being a human adult female. Mm. So you see there's been some some kind of like almost ontological shift in in the departure point of radical feminist analysis. So here in the 2010s, we need to sort of address this in, in some fashion, which isn't kind of continuously like repeating and refuting talking points as we encounter them. Um, And we need to find some way of sort of returning to the sort of curiosity and flexibility which once characterised uh, radical feminist theorizing, or at least the best of it. So, thinkers like Rich, who again I quoted, uh, Monique Petit and so on. So, this it, it feels like there's sort of almost no residue of that earlier tradition remaining in radical feminism as we encounter it today. So, those who've read Sophie Lewis, Lewis, Lewis's work, sorry, Sophie, <laughs> those who've read Sophie's work prior to Full Surrogacy Now, um, which has been published in venues ranging from Salvage Magazine to the New York Times, so that's about as broad as you can get the leftism, right? Um, we'll already... <laughs> we'll already know... Anyway, uh, we'll already know what side she takes um, uh, in the face of this great rupture within... Um, the, the the left wing of feminism um, and and certainly no one could be uh, no one could accuse Sophie of sitting on the fence. I think it's safe to call her output among the most spirited and extended in opposing transphobic feminism and also the so-called sex or, so and also the so-called sex work abolitionists um, who who Sophie has done a lot to show how their thinking kind of stitches together, particularly in reducing womanhood to sort of orifices and a lot of. Uh, a lot of their whatever. So in true Marxist form, um, Sophie not only attempts to shut down these supposedly radical arguments, but also allows their idiosyncrasies, their internal logics to play out and exposes in this way the dysfunctional thinking at work in the, in the positions of these radical feminists. So in extending this kind of earlier, more scattered collections of writings, uh, Full Surrogacy Now adds to our understanding of the treatment of surrogacy by both a detailed exploration uh, of the Western feminist primarily campaigns to outlaw it, and then an elaboration which attempts to distinguish between surrogacy uh, and other forms of childbearing. Um, And basically, she she tries to identify why this uh, attempt to say that surrogacy is in kind of no relation to uh, non-renumerated childbearing and that there's some kind of uh, deep, profound split between those two things. She kind of shows why these efforts consistently fail uh, and and instead attempts a more probing view um, of surrogacy as one birth process, one labour process um, alongside others so this, um, this, kind of, this kind of shows up a view of surrogacy which, which says that it's, it's sort of offensive and exploitative that women are carrying um, women and others are carrying um, uh, fetuses on behalf of another but it's, it's offensive and exploitative not in some particularly outrageous sense but in the sense that labour always is uh, a horror show so, talking a bit more about the book, much of it is devoted to a sort of uh, a thoroughgoing exploration of surrogacy as a practice today. In particular, Sophie um, looks at a single clinic called the Akansha Infertility Clinic in Gujarat, in India. And this is led by a really remarkable figure called Nayana Patel, who is an especially prominent surrogacy ad- advocate both in India and globally. She's a supporter of the ruling BJP. Um, Hindu Nationalist Party and a shrewd businesswoman as well as, of course, a lean-in feminist extraordinaire. So in this book we kind of see Patel's scrupulous mythological self-fashioning, her kind of elimination of socially reproductive labour which keeps her on her, her feet from her account of herself and so on, and this kind of badass boss persona which is sort of Um, another person who's sort of on the other side, another part of bourgeois feminism, along with the radicals I've already mentioned. So attempting to put Dr Patel out of a job are are an array of feminist campaigners and other critics of developments in reproductive technology. So this primarily means the right, especially religious traditionists, um, but again, we see some striking overlaps across the right and the left, with, for example, French Christian campaigners, um, having protests with sort of plastic dolls on strings and so on, showing how surrogacy is a perversion uh, and endangering the sanctity of life in the child. So, uh, I think a few of us might be readers familiar with feminist history, and I'm sure would notice a familiar story here. So, as with concerning transgender issues, sex work, especially pornography, and so on, we see um, we see a, a similar phenomenon. So. Um, in the same way that uh, in, in the United States, a dedicated group called Hands Across the Isle has tried to foster strategic collaboration between radical feminists and evangelical anti-feminists. Um, in each of these cases, we see an implicit, perhaps unrealized ele- elevation of the existing normative order of gender. So trans women make a mockery of real women. Sex work is not truly work because sex workers are kind of just holes, they're not honest, authentic labourers. And so too, finally, um, surrogacy is an offence to the actual, natural, mother-child, female-birthing relation. So this is sort of, yeah, so full surrogacy now is another piece in the puzzle of considering this flawed conceptualization of, of surrogacy, which non-Marxian feminists generally commit to. So there's kind of significantly more heft, I think, now that this book is finished, um, to my sort of sectarian conclusion that the continual overlaps between supposed radicalism and more overtly traditionalist moralizing are no coincidence. So, right, and instead of providing a kind of aimless critique that just sort of says right wingers are bad and so are radical feminists, the book then sort of follows through into proposing a mode of politics. Uh, which um, I've advocated myself, and I'll just kind of name it, and then we can talk about it in the discussion. So that's like family abolitionism. So that's sort of the, the, out, the outcome. That's the destination we reach. So yeah, that's the kind of feminist polemic, which you can look forward to. <laughs> now I'll bash some Marxists. Um, <laughs> 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 well... She does, and I'll tell you how she does it anyway. So within Marxism, within Marxism, the book's aim is to move us well beyond visions of a society where babies basically come from nowhere, um, and the hope is to instead elaborate on pregnancy, um, as I said before, as a labour process. So Sophie's time for this is uterine labour, and full surrogacy now makes a powerful case for it appearing in both waged and unwaged forms, with the controversy uh, of surrogacy on a political level somehow obscuring the commonality which exists between these reproductive tiers of labourers. So the vast majority um, are unwaged, and then surrogates are a freakish waged component of it, which we're still getting used to. So the project of this book within Marxism is to redirect scholarship away from the blossoming body of voices that previously were all too hurriedly opposing surrogacy in overly simplistic uh, and Marxologically unsound ways. So prior to um Sophie's work, events such as historical materialism. I had previously kind of found myself quite unsettled at seeing these these anti-surrogacy perspectives sort of presented um, kind of like... Basically, they were presented by these scholars who sort of were blazingly powerful in their rhetoric, and then during questions, they would sort of rapidly backpedal as people would say, well, what what do the surrogates have to say about their conditions? And they're like, oh, they're not as critical as I am. Um, (laughs) So you you would often encounter these Marxists who sort of began with their outcome analysis and then would sort of work out the worker inquiry later on um, which obviously you know whatever as like a strict orthodox marxist i can't accept right so anyway um so it seemed like the self-identified marxist scholars were taking much the same tack as the radicals um and sort of just waving um the mode of analysis to them altogether. so i think that after full surrogacy now that approach is going to become a good deal less popular um, or harder to sustain, at least. So the account of surrogacy that appears in this book is one that explores in detail and then carefully considers what it means for fetuses to effectively appear as a commodity. Um, and whereas previous analysis generally saw surrogates primarily in terms of victimhood, perhaps of neoliberalization, perhaps of feminised labour or something a bit vague like that, um, instead, um, full surrogacy now considers them as part of the proletarian workforce. So I've decided to close this preview with a passage that covers both of these agendas which I've introduced so far, so that's both feminism and Marxism, and this is a quote which I think is quite striking for appearing in the book um, formally, almost as an aside, so I think a less wide ranging work would probably have put this kind of front and centre as like the big great theoretical breakthrough but this book sort of covers so much ground that you might miss it if you're reading quickly so yeah <laughs> I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen by reading it out so, um, so basically so, Sophie approaches a familiar foil, foil of hers Julie Bindle and sort of says Ooh. so the quote begins <laughs> so yeah the quote begins in my experience one should strive not to make a habit of stooping to re- refute Julie Bindle <laughs> which you haven't done very well at but that's okay <laughs> But actually, but actually, when it is performed for clinical firms, the work that commercial surrogates do creates value, a technicality that may or may not matter for purposes of strategizing the struggle of surrogates. Like many forms of alienated labor, commercial boxing, say, or radio hosting, gestational labor is consensually plugged into a high tech extraction apparatus that starts it up or cuts it off in these cases. Needless to say, it is pregnancy itself that creates the value, even if techniques such as IVF and C-sections are required to capture that value in an efficient enough manner to be competitive. When a commercial surrogate miscarries, that value is lost. The clinicians will attempt to deny her the vast majority of her wage. Destroying capitalist value can certainly be of strategic value in the context of collective disputes. Non-value-producing gestators, leveraging their social and cultural status as reproducers of life, can play a powerful role in defending and amplifying the power of value-producing gestators who would destroy their product, particularly in the context of a dual strategy geared towards a world freed from the value form. Non-commercial pregnancy is a capitalist hinterland. Commercial surrogacy is capitalist industry. There ends the quote. So, while I'm sure there will be disagreement enough around this reignition of the debate sparked by um, wages of housework, even in a more precise form, I think it can't be denied that this is a passage which clears the way for a much more elevated discussion around childbearing as a form of labour than we've previously enjoyed. Um, so as much as I have experienced a lot of delight along sectarian lines, as I've admitted to, um, as a point of departure for contemporary Marxist feminist grappling with labour and the intimate challenges of proletarian embodiment, I think full surrogacy now is a true breakthrough. Yeah.
0: Do I no, do I yes.
3: Tash,
0: yes. 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 the mic down oh, yes. okay.
3: the recording. Great. Hi everyone. I'm Natasha, or Tash. Either is fine. Also English, you might notice. So fine. Um, mine's a little shorter, but and 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 less insightful. So here we go. Um, if you've, ever, if you've been near a television in the last two decades, there's a good chance you've seen some version of a MasterCard priceless commercial. With Don Draper-worthy savvy, the mccann Ericsson agency created the credit card ad uh, in 1997, and few others have had such staying power. The original commercial featured a MasterCard-wielding dad taking his son to a baseball game. Two tickets, $28.00. Two hot dogs, two sodas, $18. One autographed baseball, $45. Real conversation with 11-year-old son, priceless. There are some things money can't buy, the tagline goes. For everything else, there's MasterCard. MasterCard didn't pervert the idea of a priceless family to hawk consumer credit. The corporation simply used it. Capitalism has long relied on the ideological dichotomization of the commercial from the so-called natural or sometimes sacred and actually i do think that through line um, is responsible for a lot of rad femme ontology too um, there's nothing anti-capitalist in the idea that there are some things money shouldn't be able to buy when it comes to the social reproduction of the bourgeois family it has indeed been a central alibi for exploiting supposed labors of love the sphere of historically unpaid women's work ascribed as too natural to command a price, just ask the unfinished Wages for Housework movement. The notion of pricelessness has its victims, and not just Mastercard holders drowning in debt. The worst victims of the pricelessness narrative are those workers, primarily poor women, whose roles in society appear to threaten or disturb the flimsy commercial natural binary that keeps capitalism ticking along sex workers for sure, and as Sophie aptly illustrates, commercial gestational surrogates. These sites of labour of labor struggle offer crucial evidence that if we are to think radically beyond capitalism, the formulation ex-alienated labour is work is necessary but insufficient. We must undo entrenched ideas of what is natural, what is priceless. The full title of Sophie's book, Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against the Family, points to how very capacious the text is, but it should also be an immediate signal to readers that this book, which is a book about labour, is not just a call for an improvement in surrogate worker conditions such that commercial surrogacy and the family form that it maintains can be defended. Silvia Federici, among others in the Wages for Housework movement, was explicit that the demand for wages for housework was about more than delivering recognition, improved material conditions, and increased autonomy for women women in the home. Although that too, it was about demanding something impossible for capitalism to meet, which would thus require dramatic societal reconfiguration and redistribution. Sophie's call for full surrogacy takes on a similar one-two punch. Yes, the text offers a searing critique of the surrogacy industry under philanthrocapitalism and the nauseating myths that surround it. In this sense, full surrogacy now is a pragmatic call for worker solidarity. Sophie writes it will be vital to aggressively defend the point that the hatred of a particular form of work in no way justifies attacks on those workers' self organization, quite the opposite we would do better to concentrate on what sex workers and surrogacy workers have actually called for. Free housing, medical care, police abolition, freedom of movement, and so on. But Sophie's intervention is impairing these pragmatic demands with a utopian challenging, challenge to put full surrogacy into practice every day, to wage an attack on the system of kinship as property, to rethink how we might become surrogates with and for each other. If there is full surrogacy after all, there can be no surrogacy because there can be no original or authentic for which a surrogate would be substitute. There is no natural family, the MasterCard ad doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) To read another short passage from the brilliant Sophie. By surrogates I mean all those comradely gestators, midwives and other sundry interveners in the more slippery moments of social reproduction. Repairing boats swimming across borders, blockading lake-threatening pipelines, carrying, miscarrying. Let's all learn right now how comradely beings can help plan, mitigate, interrupt, suffer and reorganise this amniotic violence, which is a term I'd love Sophie to explain a little bit further (laughs) because I think it's amazing. So it's a leap, and it's a bold one, to move from an argument for worker solidarity to rethinking no less than how we kin, how we might belong to ourselves and each other and no one. Um, I think it's crucial not to misread Sophie as suggesting that it's therefore the job of current commercial surrogate workers in India to rise up and abolish the family for us. And I also think we should talk a little bit, or Sophie can talk a little bit, about the trickiness of combining surrogate worker solidarity with a reconceptualizing of surrogacy and family itself without risking imposing our utopian imaginings on poor women in India who may not share them, or or may not be uh, within a framework of thinking in those terms. Um, Sophie's book is also a challenge, especially I think, to be in this conference um, at a time when the family and its preservation are being used as grounds to call for much needed socialistic policy. So, arguments for reasonable and necessary policies, like paid family leave, are pushed under the rubric of decommodifying and making possible family life, but holding its contours stable. This is essentially the conceit of the, I think, super overhyped book, uh, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, by Kristen Godsey. Sorry if you're here. Um, (laughs) Godsey reports using a wealth of studies that under Soviet state socialism, women were found to score higher on various happiness metrics, most notably sexual satisfaction, although she doesn't really go into what she means by sex in any uh, particularly interesting ways. Um, It's not gay. (laughs) It's not gay sex. Straight sex. Can you
2: have satisfying
3: straight sex? She doesn't answer. Um, provided with more. Eco- so, but like the basic kind of conceit that we can get, sort of stick with and get, get behind, I think, is that provided with more economic independence, socialized child and elderly care, and encouraged to take roles, albeit highly gendered in the workplace, women were less dependent on a male partner or husband for their livelihoods and less confined to the late. Uh, the labour of unpaid caregiving. So the evidence and grounds for better sex under socialism are only baffling to staunch believers in Western capitalist freedom who disregard what social safety nets offer freedom from. But Godsey's conservative conclusions, her dream is basically Scandinavia, illustrate the limits of a socialist politics which places its horizon on the amelioration of life for the heterotypical family unit. The call for just a tad more socialism to soften the blows of free market capitalism might be appealing in a presidential candidate, given the sorry state of our politics, but it excludes far too many workers, especially women, queer and trans, and people of colour. Sophie's pragmatic utopianism might not point to an existing political system, in fact, it cannot, um, as a model, but it rightly elevates existing workers as those who must be centred in the fight for something new and better. Sophie's contribution is to assert that full surrogacy worker liberation, all which, you know, all worker liberation, would require not only full decriminalisation, but an end to borders, prisons, property, and all that is naturalised under capitalism to core. She makes clear we must start, but not end, with more rights, more freedom, and less harm for workers. So perhaps it's just a question of which discourse for which situations... With the state as interlocutor, it makes little sense to speak of family abolition, so perhaps we are best off to use the rhetoric of reproductive normativity in these precarious interlocutions with a uh, enemy state. The risk, I suppose, then, is collapsing this compromise navigation with the state, with the totality of our politics. Imagine just dreaming of Scandinavia. <laughs> So, I'm curious to hear from Sophie and from Jules and from Mackenzie about the challenge of struggling for Cyborgian communist utopia while appreciating the significance of fighting for socialism in our time.
0: Thank you. Over you.
1: Wow. Thank you. Um, It's a bit overwhelmingly lovely what everyone said. I thought you were going to say, Tash, at the very end there, that the politics that sort of uh, comes up against what we're talking about here is the, is the politics around families separated at the border, because that's what's really vexing me. Yeah, I should have. Um, oh <laughs> no, no. Yeah, well, I mean both, clearly, but like, um, yeah, people, you know, obviously um, it's, it's hard to go after the goal of family abolition in a moment where um, the spectacle we're facing at the, at the border is, is, kind of, is framed in terms of you know, families being torn apart. And, and I mean, that is what it is, in a sense. Um, I mean, it is. But um, I suppose what I'm interested in is why we necessarily have to acquiesce to the framing of family when we look at what's happening there. People who travel together, want to migrate together, are fleeing together, um, are trying to cross a border together, are being wrenched apart. Some of them are five years old, three years old, whatever. It doesn't seem to me to have anything to do with that violence, that these are families particularly. Mm-hmm. Although this kind of points immediately to the way that family has several different valences. It has a bit like the word surrogacy, which I don't really mean. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, I do, but only in an impossible-as-yet-not-really-thought-sense. In fact, Indiana Sarazin helped me understand this when she did an event with me in, in Berlin. She said that surrogacy is this kind of impossible concept in my, in my book, which, thanks. Thanks for helping me understand what the fuck I've actually written. Yeah. <laughs> it's really...
0: That's so what were you.
1: Yeah. Um, so family, similarly, and I think, I think... Yeah, I think Michelle O'Brien historicizes fa- the, the family and the, the, the history of the, the call for family abolition, which used to be quite sort of central to socialism and sort of has been interestingly forgotten um, for reasons Michelle also sort of like um, persuasively speculates about, but family in the sense of um, you know a, 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 almost like an ironic uh, Way of describing the, the crucial social reproduction bonds that queers have with each other is is fine. I don't really want to police people's language. When I, I I just talked about how I feel like a place in South Slope that I sometimes sleep feels like family to me. This word, you know, like nature, the word just comes out. It feels like the available term to describe kind of um, core, you know, core care intimacies. But um, But then there's family with a big F, and that's the one that's being used when when you get that poster that says, you know, keep families together, as though that's the main thing that we want in relation to the sort of border violence that's going on. And, and I, I think it's just, don't stop people crossing the border, right. and don't put people in cages, and don't
3: separate people from one
1: another. Right, because also,
3: like, if you think about the kind of, the kinning that is moving in a caravan to safety together, and operating those forms of care necessary to cross that kind of brutal desert, dangerous environment, and then reach the brutality of various state forces, to separate even those groups. Yeah. Um, be they blood, biofam, or not, is a violence in and of itself. So if we're going to call in the kind of notion of family just as a kind of lower case F mm-hmm. concept of who gets to stay together, the wrenching of any of these groups apart by virtue of that is mm-hmm. what, you know, the separations we should as well be horrified by.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, are you gonna, Do you want to read something?
1: Um, is that appropriate? Um... Did people i i mean i we were wondering if I should read partly because um uh well yeah when 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 tash says she would like me to explain what I mean by sort of amniotic violence i suppose that's um that's a bit of the book that I begin with, and it's um um it's quite bracing isn't it <laughs> because yeah. the problem the the kind of labor I'm looking at is you know gestating and i think a lot of us, I didn't know what that biology is actually about and thinking about it in terms of labour is very um, tricky. Um, yeah, maybe, you know what, fuck it, maybe I will. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna... Um, and I'll stand up because I'm gonna do, I'm gonna have to do this. This is sort of the first event on my, on my book tour. Yay. Oh my god, alright. It is a wonder we let foetuses inside us. <laughs> Unlike almost all other animals, hundreds of thousands of humans die because of their pregnancies every year, making a mockery of UN Millennium Goals to stop the carnage. In the United States, almost a thousand people die while doing childbirth each year, and another 65,000 nearly die. This situation is social, not simply natural. Things are like this for political and economic reasons. We made them this way. Pregnancy undoubtedly has its pleasures. Natality is unique. And that is why even as others suffer deeply from their coerced participation in pregnancy, many people excluded from the experience for whatever reason, be they cis, trans, or non-binary, feel deeply bereft. But even so, and even in full recognition of the sense of the sublime that people experience in gestating, it is remarkable that there isn't more consistent support Research into alleviating the problem of pregnancy. The everyday miracle that transpires in pregnancy, the production of that number more than one and less than two, receives more idealizing lip service than it does respect. Certainly, the creation of new proto personhood in the uterus is a marvel artists have engaged for millennia and psychoanalytic <coughs> philosophers for nearly a century. Most of us need no reminding, actually maybe we do, <laughs> <laughs> that, that we are, each of us, the blinking, thinking, pulsating products of gestational work and its equally laborious aftermath. Yet in 2017, a reader and thinker as compendious as Maggie Nelson can still state, semi-incredulously, but with a strong case behind her, that philosophical writing about actually doing gestation constitutes an absence in culture. <coughs> and what particularly fascinates me about the subject is pregnancy's morbidity, the little disgust ways that biophysically speaking, gestating is an unconscionably <coughs> destructive business. The basic mechanics, according to evolutionary biologist Suzanne Sadadin, have evolved in our species in a manner that can only be described as a ghastly fluke. Scientists have discovered, by experimentally putting placental cells, in mouse carcasses, that the active cells of pregnancy rampage unless aggressively contained through every tissue they touch. Kathy Acker was not citing these studies when she remarked that having cancer was like having a baby, but she was unconsciously channeling their findings. The same goes for Elena Ferrante's protagonist in the Days of Abandonment, when she reports, I was was like a lump of food that my children chewed without stopping. A cud made of a living material that continually amalgamated and softened its living substance to allow two greedy bloodsuckers to nourish themselves. The genes that are active in embryonic development are also implicated in cancer, and that is not the only reason why pregnancy among Homo sapiens, in Sadaddardin's account, perpetrates a kind of biological bloodbath. And I love that word bloodbath <laughs> because the word for amnion actually means. The word am- amnion means bowl in which the lamb of slaughtered uh, <laughs> lambs is caught. Did I say that right? <laughs> it, it really does. Um, it is the specific functionally rare type of placenta we have to work with, the hemochorial placenta, which like almost no other species has, apart from some shrew. Tame <laughs> um, it determines that the entity Chikako Takashita calls the mother fetus tears itself apart inside. Rather than simply interfacing with the gestator's biology through a limited filter or contenting itself with freely proffered secretions, this placenta digests its way into its host's arteries, securing full access to most tissues. Mammals whose placenta don't breach the walls of the womb in this way, can simply abort or reabsorb unwanted foetuses at any stage of pregnancy, Sadadin notes. For them, life goes on almost as normal during pregnancy. Conversely, a human cannot rip away a placenta in the event of a change of heart, or say a sudden drought or outbreak of war, without risk of lethal hemorrhage. Our embryo hugely enlarges and paralyzes the wider arterial system supplying it, while at the same time elevating hormonally the blood pressure and sugar supply. A 2018 study found that postnatal PTSD affects at least three to 4% of birth givers in the UK. The US percentage is likely to be far higher, especially among black women. No wonder philosophers have asked whether gestators are persons. It seems impossible that a society would let such grisly things happen on a regular basis to entities endowed with legal standing. Given the biology of hemocorial placentation, the fact that so many of us endowed with viable wombs are walking around in a state of physical implantability, no pill, no IUD, ought by rights to be regarded as the most <coughs> extraordinary thing. To be sure, it has been relatively straightforward in many parts of the world to stop gestating at the very beginning of the process, simply because an unremarkable or even unnoticed miscarriage occurred or because the gestator has had access uh, through a knowledgeable friend to abortifacients. In 2008, Eliza Schwartz self inseminated with fresh sperm and then self-aborted over and over again every month for nine months by swallowing pills as a kind of art project. And Indiana reminds me that it was really unclear with the university whether she had actually been aborting anything. It was really—I f- mean, okay. read, read Indiana on that. I'm curious what that perverse start-stop labor experiment was like. Schwartz's true, non-defensive thoughts on the matter are unfortunately obliterated by a wall of right-wing bellowing. Unsurprisingly, given that one would expect to feel good upon being extricated from a non-stop job one isn't willing to do, in general, the experience of termination generates feelings of relief and cared for As Erica Miller evidences in happy abortions, sustained negative emotions are extremely rare in connection with having an abortion. I'll carry on just a tiny bit, shall I? Just Gestational fix, because otherwise you, you think I'm just talking about this, whereas well, you know what I'm talking about because they just said. But <laughs> pregnancy has long been substantially techno-fixed already when it comes to those whose lives really matter. Under capitalism and imperialism, safer or at least medically supported gestation, has typically been the privilege of the upper classes. And the high-end care historically afforded to the rich when they gestate their own young has lately been supplemented by a technology that absorbs 100% of the damage from the consumer's point of view, the human labor of a gestational surrogate. And I frame it that way because it's called Assisted Reproductive Technology, when the whole point of my book is that it's actually a labor that you're hiring. Surrogacy, as news media still report, began booming globally in 2011 and around 2016, the industry began suffering a series of setbacks. Thailand and Nepal banned surrogacy altogether for the foreseeable future and other major hubs, India, Cambodia, Mexico, legislated against all but altruistic heterosexual surrogacy arrangements. Nevertheless, there are still privately registered profit-making and fertility clinics on every continent listing surrogates for hire who will remain, so they say, genetically entirely unrelated to the babies that customers carry away at the end of the process. For just as the Kamiya commentators, like Sharmila Radrappa, predicted surrogacy bans do not halt but actually fuel the baby trade, rendering gestational workers far more vulnerable than before. Surrogacy bans uproot, isolate, and criminalize gestational workers, driving them underground and often into foreign lands where they risk prosecution alongside their bosses and brokers far away from their support networks. In July of last year, 33 pregnant Cambodians were detained and charged in Phnom Penh together with their Chinese boss for human trafficking offenses. Separately, one Mumbai-based infertility specialist began recruiting surrogate workers from Kenya immediately after India's Supreme Court decision against commercial and homosexual surrogacy. Through IVF, he implants the Kenyans with embryos belonging to his gay clients. Uh, Pregnant, those contractors are then flown back to Nairobi after 24 weeks monitoring in India. The babies are birthed in designated hospitals in Nairobi, where clients can pick them up. The doctor maintains he has not broken Indian law because he has not interacted with gay clients within that territory. All he has provided technically is IVF for Kenyan healthcare seekers. In other words, clinicians simply jump through legal loopholes by moving surrogate mothers across borders, exposing surrogate mothers to greater risks while expanding and diversifying their business partnerships worldwide. The trend towards commercial surrogacy in that that sense does not constitute a qualitative transformation in the mode of biological reproduction that currently destroys, as those aforementioned mortality statistics show, so many adult lives. In fact, capitalist biotech does nothing at all to solve the problem of pregnancy per se, because that is not the problem it is addressing. It is responding exclusively to demand for genetic parenthood, to which it applies the logic of outsourcing. While the the development remains uneven and tentative, it is clear that what capitalism is proposing by alienating and globalising gestational surrogacy in this way is, as usual, an option involving moving the problem around. Pregnancy work is not so much disappearing or getting easier as crashing through the various regulatory barriers onto an open market. Let the poor do the dirty work wherever they are cheapest or most convenient to enrol. Okay, I'll just stop there. Thanks.